when the oil embargo hit during the Nixon administration, Kissinger called in energy experts to do little tutorials for him. But even then, he made some pretty obvious mistakes where he didn't understand the international oil market. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited in this episode to interview Jay Hakes. He's a presidential and energy historian, author, and speaker. He recently published a new book called Energy Crises, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and the Hard Choices in the 1970s. The 1970s were a decade of historic American energy crisis, major interruptions in oil supply from the Middle East, the country's most dangerous nuclear accident through Mild Island, and chronic shortages of natural gas. In energy crises, Jay brings his expertise to bear on the questions of why these crises occurred, how different choices might have prevented or ameliorated them, and what they have meant for the half century since, and likely the half century ahead. I enjoyed reading Jay's book. What I liked was that, you know, obviously it was heavily into U.S. energy policy, but what he did was make it into a story, and you really got the perspective of the different presidents, the Secretary of State, White House advisors, because Jay used presidential notes, uh, tape recordings that they had during the Nixon administration, and previously like classified information that has been declassified. So it's really interesting because you're really getting the perspective of the president and his advisors during this very interesting time with these energy crises. Jay is an expert on U.S. energy policy. He has a long history of working on energy issues, including as administrator of the U.S. EIA or Energy Information Administration during the Clinton administration and as the director of research and policy for President Obama's BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill Commission. He also served for 13 years as director of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. We talk about Jay's book, but we talk about a lot of other things as well, like the oil embargo and how that was like an impetus for the U.S. to try to figure out energy independence. Specifically during the Carter administration, they started investing in alternative energy technology that included solar. And we wouldn't be where we are in solar today without that. Also, like the electrification of the car fleet, how that leads to energy independence and we're not dependent on foreign oil and how 1970s had a huge impact in the energy energy industry. Now he also speaks about climate change as well. I appreciate you listening to the Solar Maverick podcast, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening. My name is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm really excited to have Jay Hakes. He just released a new book, April 1st of 2021. It's called Energy Crises, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Tough Choices in the 1970s. Jay, welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast. Uh, Benoit, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. I read the book and I learned so much. So I really appreciate it. I could tell that so much time was spent to really write this book. And I learned a lot. So I really appreciate you writing the book and spending time today to talk about it. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Oh, anytime. And in the beginning of the podcast, we talk a little bit about your background beforehand. But I think it would be great, Jay, to understand more about your background from you know your perspective. 
Well, I started as an academic. You know, I got tenure at a young age, but uh, I somehow got involved in government and a little bit of politics from time to time. You know, and a lot of my assignments ended up being in the energy field. I was the Florida State Energy Director back in the 1980s. We actually used to run public service ads supporting solar energy. And then, you know, I was active with other states on energy. So when they were forming the Clinton administration, I was picked to be the head of the U.S. Energy Information Administration. And that was at a time where the Netscape browser had just come out. And we actually started preparing our website before most people had modems. And I think even today, probably a number of your listeners would use the EIA website. It's kind of like the publicly free available source of data and analysis. And I'm quite proud of what we accomplished there and what they're doing today. And then I ended up, after that, serving 13 years as the director of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. And one of the advantages of that is it sort of opened my eyes more to what was available in terms of historical records and how that could shed light on current topics. And there I got to meet a lot of the major figures in history, not just from the Carter administration, but from uh, Nixon, Ford, and a lot of other presidencies, and a lot of historians. So when I decided I didn't want to have a day job I had to go to every day and wanted to be a full-time writer, I tried to mix my background in energy with my background in history and particularly presidential history. And so that's produced a couple of books so far, and I'm already working on a third one. You know, I find energy and presidential history to be just totally fascinating. So it's very easy for me to go to an archive for a week and be glued to a chair and just read through documents that other people haven't read. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. And that really shows in the book when you read it. I mean, I know when I spoke to you about in the pre-interview, like I felt like I was in those meetings in the White House with the different advisors, you know, also the Middle Eastern palaces and a Camp David. Can you talk about like what went into writing that? Because that style of writing made it interesting. And, you know, normally the public doesn't have access to those meetings. So it was just interesting really to see that. Well, I'll tell you a few of my secrets. One is the Nixon tapes. Nixon wasn't taped for his full presidency, but he was taped for several years. And the people in the conversation didn't know they were ever going to be taped. And Nixon didn't think they'd ever be public. So they're very candid, but they're hard to work with. You have to go through a subject guide and look for every word that might be related to energy. And then you have to listen to it. And it's a lot of work. But I went through because I thought no one else had heard it. So I'm actually listening to a conversation where most people in the room don't even know they're being recorded. So I thought, well, then Nixon, after this was revealed, he cut it off. But what I find with presidents, there's usually somebody in the room who's keeping very detailed notes. And so two people are arguing. I get the argument on one side and then the argument on the other side. And these are generally found at presidential libraries. But again, it takes some digging to find them. If the president gives a big speech on energy, I try to read all the drafts. There might have been 12 drafts. And I actually got where I could recognize the president's handwriting so I could tell what they personally added to the speech. And then, of course, with the president, there's always a log of how they spend every minute of their waking hour. So I know exactly what time of day something happened, you know, because I can always check that log, you know, what time of the day he found out about the Three Mile Island nuclear accident. So I felt that would add flavor to the book, because as you know, energy can be a technical issue. And it's hard to introduce people involved with oil policy and renewable policy and foreign relations 
So I thought it would be much more interesting to the general public if they had a sense of the narrative story and then the people, you know, the very interesting people that make up energy history and White House history. So there's a few people in there, names people would recognize, like Henry Kissinger, you know, who was Nixon's foreign policy advisor, some other people that probably the general public has not heard of, but have a lot of influence. So I always say, you know, terse conversations at the White House carry a heavy weight, you know, do tax extensions continue? Those are made by a group of people that were busy doing a lot of other things, and they may have only discussed it for a few minutes, but it can have a big impact on history. Yeah, that is a great point, Jay. And it's interesting because like, I think you mentioned this before, but you know, they're not necessarily energy experts. And especially within the 70s, there was so much U.S. energy policy. So people had to get up to speed on a lot of complicated issues for the first what? time. Well, you know, it's interesting because I had access to documents that were not public. Almost every major figure confessed at some point in frustration that they didn't understand what they were talking about. Now, Carter, Jimmy Carter, was trained in nuclear physics and helped Admiral Rickover develop the first nuclear submarines. So when he got version of the energy plan from the Secretary of Energy, he said, the public isn't going to understand this. I can't even understand it. And both Ford and Nixon and Kissinger made similar statements. So I appreciate their candor because Nixon, when the oil embargo hit during the Nixon administration, Kissinger called in energy experts to do little tutorials for him. But even then, he made some pretty obvious mistakes where he didn't understand the international oil market. You know, from the renewable side, I think a lot of people in those days didn't know the difference between the traditional thermal solar collector that was used for water heating and the photovoltaic panels that was a whole different kind of solar energy. So that's why, you know, people like you, people like me who write books, and I think EIA does a good job of this to try whenever possible to talk about things in layman's language and realize that a nuclear expert may not know that much about solar, a solar person may not know that much about oil imports. And so we all try to be as clear as we can. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a couple of great points that you mentioned, like really having a general knowledge of energy, even if you're an expert in a particular part of energy, it really makes a difference because everything's all interconnected, as you know. It's interesting because you talked about the oil embargo. Can you go back and talk about you know that time period and how like that impact the U.S. economy? Because I think it's really interesting how it was you know, talked about in the book and all the meetings and the negotiations and maybe not even understanding what's happening in the negotiations or thinking you have an agreement, which Nixon and Kissinger thought they did with, I think it was Saudi Arabia. The oil embargo was announced in October of 1973. And basically, the Arab members of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries decided to chop their production of oil and to embargo the United States and a few other countries because of our participation in the war between Egypt and Israel. And it's hard to understand the impact of that embargo without recognizing that before that, the United States had kind of ruled the roost in the world of energy. Not only were we the major producers in the world, but many of the international companies were American-based. So about the time of the embargo, many of the OPEC countries were also taking over the ownership of these countries. So not only did we physically lose, you know, four to five million barrels of oil a day, which was a shock to the economy, it was also a psychological shock that, hey, the world has changed and we're not quite in control anymore. So this created gasoline lines and this was frustrating to motorists at times. 
in some states, 50% of the stations had no gasoline at all. And you asked me how I know that. That was a week spent down at the AAA headquarters outside of Orlando because they would survey several thousand stations a week to find out what was going on. I don't know that anybody else is going down to look at that, but it helps me explain what went on. So in January, Nixon wanted, in his State of the Union address, announced that the embargo was over. And there were all these interesting talks going back and forth between Egypt and the United States and Saudi Arabia and the United States. But he realized he couldn't do it. But in the course of that speech, he made a statement that for those of us who are in energy kind of cheer, because he said, today, energy is the number one issue in the United States. And, you know, a lot of times us who work in energy, we think it should always be number one. But at that time, all the public opinion polls showed that the people thought, yes, you know, we're in a big pickle here. And like many crises, some good things came out of it. And the thing was that we need to think differently about energy. And so it was after the embargo, you started to see the initial investments by the federal government in things like photovoltaic energy panels. Now, it wasn't just solar. It was a lot of investments in coal. And we were trying to invest in just about anything that we thought might help us be less dependent on foreign oil. So if you're studying almost anything in energy today, you can test me out on this, but I think I can find the early roots of it in the 1970s, if not earlier. But it was interesting because Iran always used to say to us, we're doing you a favor by jacking up prices because you're going to have to start looking at alternate forms of energy. And looking back on it today, you could say, well, there's a certain amount of truth to that. Yeah, that is so true. And it's interesting because when they cut production, the Middle East or OPEC, obviously they were able to charge a lot higher pricing. And so it made more sense to keep supply low from reading your book, right? Yeah, that was a breakthrough in understanding. I think before the embargo happened, there were only two or three people in the world that were smart enough to have figured that out. But when you cut production and the price goes up, sometimes you make more money by producing less. And I think it came as a surprise to Saudi Arabia, actually. So they were able to continue the embargo for a long period of time. You know, six months is is pretty long time. And I don't think the Americans thought that they would be able economically to do that. Now, what happened was OPEC eventually got greedy. And if a cartel raises the price artificially, then alternatives begin to be more attractive, either oil production in other places or alternatives, you know, like solar doesn't compete, or at least in those days, didn't compete directly with oil. But there was a feeling that all the alternative sources were helpful and we probably should support all of them. Yeah, I guess also wasn't their research into fracking as well? During yes. That yeah, there was a guy, George Mitchell, who developed fracking. He relied heavily on the federal government for early technical research and product development and tax incentives. And he bought this land in Texas that really had no value unless that land could produce fracked oil. And you couldn't do it at that time. It's hard to protect patents. I don't know how it is in solar. In oil and other areas, it's kind of hard to protect patents and make your money that way. But he had it figured out. He bought the land that if his technology worked, even if other people infringed on his patent, he'd still make all this money because the land was worth more. So fracking started then. Solar went on steroids for a while in Carter. And this has kind of been missed by historians because a lot of these programs were cut back in the 1980s. The solar research budget was cut back every year after Carter left office for the next eight years. 
So we sort of missed the progress that was made during that time. And even though, you know, in the area of solar, it didn't bring us to an area where the PV was yet competitive in the market, if we hadn't had that technical progress that occurred there in the late 1970s, we wouldn't be where we are today. So it's interesting to get a line graph of the improvements in efficiencies and the reduction in costs in solar. And, you know, those early cuts weren't enough to be commercially successful, but they were big nonetheless. So it's like you can't climb the ladder till you climb the first few rungs. And that's when we were climbing some of the first rungs. And so I think we need to go back and give credit to some of the, there was a fellow named Paul Maycock at Department of Energy. He was kind of the technical guy for PV. And I used to hear Paul give lectures in the 1980s, but he had a plan you know, drive the cost down, drive the efficiency up. And unfortunately, his funding was cut off after a couple of years. But even the few years they were working on it, the Department of Energy made a big difference. Yeah, and it's interesting to look at now because with the new administration, they're proposing, you know, to invest a lot in infrastructure. Part of it is into solar technology and increasing the life, you know, of the panel to 30 to 50 years. And as we've seen, like, as you install a certain amount of solar worldwide, then the price keeps going down, obviously, the efficiency. So it's interesting to hear that this was actually happening, you know, back in the 70s. Yeah, this kind of relates to another point that I think the book illustrates. And Nixon actually talks about this in one of the tapes. If you look at this from the point of view from a politician who's elected to office, has to run every two years or every four years or in the Senate every six years, if you invest in energy technology, particularly the basic kind of research that the Department of Energy engages in, it produces a lot of benefits, but not right away. So from a politician standpoint, they have to be willing to invest in a technology that may pay off in the administration of one of their successors. That's one reason I like to write history because we need to remember these people (laughs) that take a long run view. Now, the things you can do in the short run, you know, obviously tax credits and things like that, you can ramp up and down. It's not immediate, but the investments in R&D, research and development, those don't pay off right away but they can pay off in very big terms. So we need to do, you know, a lot of states have renewable mandates. You know, that's one way to approach a renewable energy and the R&D that's likely to be in the infrastructure package, that will be an important part of it. And then if the infrastructure package includes things like transmission lines, you know, to sure. sort of modernize our electric grid, that ends up helping renewables because you have more flexibility delivering the power from where it's produced to where it's needed. That's such an important part of the plan because we have an old, you know, transmission distribution network and with distributed energy, it's key that it needs to be upgraded, specifically with storage as well, getting economical as time goes on. It's interesting, you kind of mentioned some of the answers to this, but it would be interesting to get your perspective, like why was like the 1970s the most important decade of energy in the U.S.? Well, I think that we realized that the old way of doing business wasn't going to work. And we just thought the oil would always be there, the electricity would always be there, the gas would always be there, and we ended up having shortage of every one of them at some point or other. Now, the book is called Energy Crises, and that title was carefully chosen because a lot of people talk about energy crisis, you know, in the singular. So we had three interruptions in oil supplies from the Middle East. Plus, we had a natural gas shortage that led to the closing down of schools and all sorts of facilities in many states. We had the Three Mile Island nuclear accident. So you add all those up, 
and it changed the thinking. So we passed a lot of laws. You know, the mileage efficiency standards for automobiles are important. And again, look at the big historical sweep here, because if you have efficiency standards and you keep ramping them up, we we took little vacations from ramping them up, but you keep ramping them up, it leads to the hybrid. When I was at the Department of Energy, both the Prius and the Honda Insight came out, and I drove the first Honda Insight that came off of the production line, and then I Toyota heard about that, and so they offered me a chance to drive the first Prius that arrived on the shores of the United States. So... Then you get to the hybrid, so you got these battery, you know, batteries suddenly become more important. A lot of work goes into batteries, and then that gets you to all electric, or gets you to plug-in electric, and then you get to all electric. And then once you do that, then the renewables can run the car. So, you know, again, if we hadn't had those mileage efficiency standards that started back in the 70s, we might not be as close to the electric car as we are today. You know, again, if we want to be successful in the future and having policies that work, it's very important to understand how we got to where we are today. The clean energy, you were talking about emissions, vehicle emissions. That's part of the Clean Energy Act, is that correct? Or is well, it- there was the Energy Policy Act of 1975, and that required that the mileage go up to 27.5 miles per gallon. And then, of course, during the 70s, I haven't mentioned yet, but we also passed the Clean Air Act. And the Clean Air Act was forcing us to phase out from leaded gasoline. So there was a lot of things going on at the same time that made life more complicated. And then as it turns out, we didn't get a ruling on this till 2007, but the authorizing legislation for executive action on climate change is the 1970 Clean Air Act. So there's yet another huge thing that was done. And Senator Muskie, who may not remember today, he was kind of a well-known senator at the time. I've followed him very closely in the 60s and 70s, not necessarily in this book, but in other research I've done. And when he was pushing for the Clean Air Act in 1970, he actually mentioned climate change. So it's a big decade in a lot of ways. I think you agree, telling it in the form of a story just makes it easier to digest. Definitely. I agree. It makes it a lot more interesting to read. And I think it's also easier for people to understand as well, because you're mixing the conversations and energy to an interesting. I have more confidence in a book that's written in chronological order, because when a book's (laughs) not written in chronological order, cause and effect sometimes get mixed up. You know, I read a book that says such and such cause such and such. Well, they didn't come in that order, you know. Yes. So, so fortunately, when you're using a lot of White House records, you have very detailed time frames. You know, memos all have the date on them. Sometimes a speech that's being worked on has the time of day. You know, there was one day in March of 1975 where in the morning, Carter learned of the mile accident at the Three Mile Island nuclear plant. In the afternoon, he had a pre-scheduled meeting with the Solar Caucus, which was the members of the House and the Senate that were pushing him to do more on solar. And then also that there was the possibility that Saudi Arabia was going to make further cuts in oil production. And so they were monitoring that. So you had all this happening in one day. You know, it puts a little pressure on the writer because, you know, to handle all of this. But you get a sense of what it's like to be president. Because these presidents, you know, they lead a very interesting life. They, they're dealing with all sorts of things all over the world all the time and trying to understand it as best they can. 
This episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Podcast Laundry, the podcast concierge service that I use to make sure that my listeners hear the best quality show. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up time to do more of what you love to do, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347 871-8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Thank you. Yeah, Duffa, that is really interesting. It's interesting you mentioned about Three Mile Island and obviously the accident that happened. What do you think is the future of nuclear energy in the U.S.? Obviously, there's less nuclear plants now than before you know, related to accidents that have happened, specifically like Fukushima? Like, what's your perspective from what you've seen? Well, I'll tell you what my view is. People may or may not agree with me. I think you can go up to 80% renewables and have a grid function very well with good storage and other things. But I could see, you know, certain kinds of weather or cyber attacks or something that may go into 100% challenge. I'm not saying it can't be done by 2050, but I'm more concerned about ramping it up quickly now, and then we'll figure out how we're going to handle things in 2050. But the question is, is there some other form of power that would be zero carbon that could be mixed in? And I think there are two competitors, and we don't know whether either one will be successful or not. One would be natural gas, where you sequester the carbon out of the stream. So maybe there would be 10, 20% natural gas, but it would be non-carbon producing. Sure. The other thing would be nuclear, and I think those would have to be smaller modular plants that would have much lower costs than these big thousand plus megawatt plants that they're still trying to build. I was on a review panel of the nuclear industry in the 1980s, and we suggested at that time that the industry should move to the smaller modular plants, partly because it's hard to predict demand growth you know, five years in advance. And these plants we're building today, they take a very long time to build, a lot of financing. Now, nuclear engineers don't agree with me. They say, Jay, you don't understand economy of scale. Well, I think I do understand economy of scale. I'm just saying, when you take financing into account, estimation of load growth, and the fact when you're using modular components, you can manufacture them off-site, that's where you get your economies of scale because you're producing these components in larger volumes. So both of those technologies have financial challenges ahead of them, whether they can compete with where we think wind and solar are headed. You know, particularly solar appears to have a lot of upside potential for further technical development. Wind a bit, but not probably as much as solar. So gas and nuclear are going to be under tremendous pressure to cut costs and be safe. So I'd like for them to have that chance to try. You know, we all know what happens when the electric grid goes down. It can be either a private inconvenience or they just had 200 people die in Texas. And our economy now is going to become increasingly dependent on electricity. So the reliability of the grid is a huge thing. And so I'm all for a variety of storage mechanisms for solar and gas. You know, batteries are the obvious. 
but you know, there's a role for pump storage, there's a role for hydrogen. So we need to not put all of our eggs in one basket. But we can go real far with wind and solar. But I do think it's in the national interest to keep these nuclear plants we have open for as long as we can safely do that. I think it provides a better mix. It also broadens the political coalition that sees a benefit to dealing with climate change to get a maximum number of actors in the lower no-carbon team. So that's how I look at it. That's just a hunch because we don't, you know, for the next 10 years, we kind of have pretty much the technologies we need to make dramatic progress. So it's a matter of economics, of will, of public policy. As Bill Gates suggests in his recent book, we still have a little bit more inventing to do to make sure we get to where we need to be in 2050. I think also like we're going to see improvement, as you mentioned, in technology, and maybe there's going to be technology that we really don't know that's going to become more prevalent. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, I think that solar will be so cheap that we can have a lot of overcapacity. One of the problems in Texas was they didn't have enough excess capacity in the system. They didn't really adopt the national standards for what you would normally expect. And if solar keeps on its current trajectory and costs continue to come down at anywhere near the rate they've been coming down recently, you can get where it's not on an economic to have a lot of spare capacity available. And so that's where solar can be an important part of the puzzle. It just probably won't be the only part of the puzzle. Yeah, that's a great point that I didn't really think about. That is huge. And that's interesting. I never actually thought about that until you just mentioned that. You wrote a book about energy independence in 2008. What are your views of energy independence for the U.S. now, like 12 or 13 years later? Because a lot probably has changed. Well, I'll give myself a little pat on the back. You know, I wrote the book in 2007, and it came out in 2008. And at that time, our net oil imports were 60%. And we were sort of getting used to it. Most people said, well, there's nothing you can do to change it. And, you know, we buy oil from them, and then they buy things from us. It's really not that bad. And I argued that it was a threat to national security and the economy and actually even the environment for us to find that as acceptable. So I wrote this book giving a little bit of history about how we got this pickle, and the publisher wanted me to offer some suggestions about how to get out of it. And I was moderately optimistic about U.S. gas and oil production because I was aware of the fracking revolution, but I wasn't optimistic enough. But I was more optimistic than anybody else who was writing because there were a lot of books came out at the time about peak oil, and we were just about to run out. And I didn't believe that. I've been on record saying, you know, if you use the right technology, you can find a lot more oil and gas. So the book got good reviews, but some people said I was Pollyannish because it really wasn't possible to cut oil imports. Well, last year we had net zero oil imports. I, I had hoped to get to maybe 20%. I was the most optimistic person out there, but we got down to zero. And I think that's good, you know, for other nations that try to push us around because we're dependent on their oil. I think we shouldn't try to push people around with our oil resources. I think the United States benefits from free trade. We import a lot of things. You know, I say net imports because sometimes we'll get crude oil here and then export the refined product. Or sometimes a refinery needs a certain kind of oil and it makes sense to exchange with another country. So the right refinery has either the light oil or the heavy oil. And all of that works out more efficiently in an international market. But right now, you know, if price of oil was to going to go up, it would hurt some people in the country 
and it would help other people in the country. So the national economy wouldn't suffer that much. So in the old days, if we're importing 60% of our oil, we can sort of be brought to our knees. And now we can't. So I have, you know, some people feel we should just cold turkey, shut down all the oil drilling in the United States. And I don't think that's helpful from an international perspective. I do think it is helpful to accelerate the penetration of electric cars that will eventually displace the oil and let that happen that way, which is a much more positive way to look at it. And then that creates, you know, if we electrify transportation and a lot of things that haven't been electric, you know, like I live in New Orleans, so we have a port here. And so these heavy lifts that they use to unload the boats, those are diesel generated generally. Well, those can and they will be electrified. Well, once they're electrified, that means in effect, they can be run by solar panels. So that's kind of where we're headed. So I think accentuating the positive side of the equation is the fastest way to get progress. <laughs> Definitely, that is such a great point. And it'll be interesting to see how quickly the U.S. transportation fleet becomes electrified. You know, we obviously at this point in time are trailing China and Europe, but I think it's going to happen faster than most people think because the driving an electric car is such a pleasurable experience. I mean, they accelerate faster than internal combustion engine. And I think they're going to have a lot of safety features. You know, for instance, where I live, the danger to me in driving a car, you know, they've got great crash protection now. But there's a lot of bicyclists on the road. And, you know, in the urban streets, there's pedestrian trying to jump across the road. And if I can get a car that gives me an alert signal when a bicyclist is near so I don't, you know, swerve or turn inappropriately, that's a huge benefit for me. So I think the electric cars, as people ride them, they get the range that's needed. The charging stations are in place. But most people are going to be able to recharge them at home. And this will be particularly good for wind because there's a lot of wind power that goes to waste at night. And so if people are, and I have this vision of the future, you know, if you got computer controls, you just set your recharge for your car, recharge this car when there's the winds blowing the fastest. And then you get a system that's extremely efficient and economical. That is so true. And that's an interesting perspective. And then eventually cars are going to be autonomous anyway, or self-driving is going to be pretty popular. And they already are to some extent. I mean, I was kind of skeptical of a self-driving car. And I was listening to the leading expert at Georgia Tech when I was living in Atlanta. He was giving a lecture on automation. And he said, you know, parts of your driving are already automated. You know, my car, which I bought five years ago, if I leave my lane, it alerts me that I've done it. I can put it on automatic drive and it will automatically slow down if it gets too close to the car in front. So that's a little bit self-driving already. So because when you get a technology where the steps can come gradually, you can be pretty sure that you're going to keep moving ahead. And that's where we are with the automobile. I've always been fascinated with the automobile since I was a little kid. And it's exciting time now to, to just watch what's happening with cars. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I mean, for me, like driving a Tesla was pretty amazing experience yeah. versus your traditional car and all the yeah. technology that's related to it. Some of the many benefits of it. You know, your next book, I heard you speak about another interviews about climate change. Can you talk about your views of climate change? I know sometimes yeah. it's a politically charged subject, but it shouldn't be something. I've been frustrated that both the people who want to delay doing something about climate change and the people who understand that we do have to treat it as an urgent problem 
aren't all that aware of where climate change science came from, how we've dealt with it over the years. And just one little factoid that I sometimes throw out is the first congressional testimony on climate change that I was able to find, and I'm pretty sure is the first, was 1956. And the original data collections on accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that were more exact came out in 1960. So I wanted to capture that history because like the book I just wrote on the energy crisis of the 1970s, I think if we understand that history, it's going to help us make better choices about the future. So what I would do, well, I've already written some sample chapters. I'd start with the Eisenhower administration, who was president from 1953 to 1960. And then I would go up through the Clinton administration and the Kyoto Treaty, which would take you through the 20th century. That avoids me having to make it too long a book of making it current and not having to deal with people, well, they like President Trump or they don't like President Trump, and maybe just go back and look a little bit more objectively at that period. Again, I take a White House approach, but I also take a science approach. So I look at the science office at the White House. What were they talking about? Where were they at climate change? What were the arguments pro and con that were being made? And then the great early scientists of climate change, many of whom came from California. So I've spent a lot of time out there. This was just before COVID hit. You know, today you can't get in into these archives. So I've done a lot of research in the scientists who sort of develop the science. So I think it will open a lot of eyes on all sides. My initial conclusion, I mean, I'm still writing, but my initial conclusion that by the late 1970s, the science was pretty much rock solid, that we had the evidence that the combustion of fossil fuels could be seen in the rising accumulations of carbon dioxide. And we had a pretty good idea from the chemistry of carbon dioxide, what that was going to do. Also, there's a technology that people forget about in climate change discussions, and that's carbon dating. So the carbon dating scientists can kind of tell us what happened millions of years ago when carbon levels were high and low. So a lot of the things that are happening today that people act kind of surprised about, they were talking about back in the 1970s and 80s, even before congressional committees. So it's sobering because, you know, we're human animals. We're here on this planet. And, you know, we got a lot of problems to worry about. So, you know, you can't say that climate's the only problem, but it's pretty big up there. And, you know, my current book is dedicated to my grandchildren. And so I try to always keep them in mind and things that I want them to know and look back and give credit to the people who are maybe a little bit ahead of their time and not demean the people who weren't because we all learn as we go through life, but at least understand why we didn't step up the plate a little bit faster. I'm excited about you working on the book and I'm excited to read it once it comes out. Will you have me back on your program? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'd love to talk about it and to get more you know, understanding of it. It was interesting because I was listening to an interview and you talked about, which I thought was really interesting, uh, the lost years of climate change. Right. And energy policy in general. The automobile efficiency standards based on the 1975 legislation kept updating through 1985. And then we didn't have new legislation or even new regulations on automobile efficiency standards until 2007. So I call those the 22-year desert for energy policy because pretty much we never got back to the levels of energy research and development that we'd had under Carter. Now, we didn't cut it to zero, but it was proceeding at a leisurely pace. So if we had just kept 
going at the pace we were going at the end of the Carter administration, we wouldn't have to be treating this with the urgency that we do today. Today, we do have to make up some of this lost ground. I don't think it's a huge sacrifice because you're taking money that might be invested one area and it finds new investment opportunities in this new energy economy. But, you know, for people who have been used to doing things a certain way, you know, any kind of change is a little bit of a threat. That's why I think history is good. It helps get our minds comfortable with the idea that things have changed in the past and they'll change in the future. And the idea is to make sure that change is beneficial and not negative. You know, one of the great climate scientists, Roger Rebell, was invited to advise President Lyndon Johnson in 1965, and the first time he was 64. So he said, you know, we're looking at a world that is changing, and we want to make sure we can change it for good. Now, in those days, people thought they could end up controlling the weather and climate, <laughs> that we could go up and geoengineer it. That idea is kind of coming back with some people, but I think the scientists sort of gave up on that for a while. But, you know, we need to be thoughtful about the choices we make and not let things just happen. <laughs> yes. And it's interesting when I think about your book, that energy crisis is specifically in the 1970s. Now that we look, it seems like the U.S. is in a place of potentially like energy abundance and not dependent on external countries for fuel sources where they could basically impact the U.S. economy severely, which is part of the reason why I actually got into renewable energy, because it's also, you know, if you think about how economically they've been devastated or even wars that have been happened, because right. it's just interesting to see how things... Well, in my 2008 book, I made the statement that it was clear that both of the wars in Iraq were primarily motivated by oil. And that was not necessarily what was being said publicly. And I thought I would get pushback on that. I got some pushback. You know, some of the climate deniers, they go on the web and start attacking you because you believe in climate change. On the military part of it, I even spoke to a conference of generals one time. I mean, you know, the military follows energy pretty closely. So one of them came up to me at the end. He says, you got that right. And a lot of the documents that explain every president who goes into war has to do an official document explaining the rationale for the war, but it's not a public document. So it's years later that you can get access to it. And when you read those documents, it's extremely clear that we felt that we would be in a much weaker position in the world if we let Saddam Hussein have too much influence over there. And it was interesting for me as well, like to hear about Muammar Gaddafi as well and his stance on oil production in the 70s, because I really remember more of what kind of happened in the 80s and, you know, kind of now or recently, you know, so... He was a big figure. He was the pathbreaker, you know, that both Iran and Saudi Arabia had friendly relations to the United States. So even when they were raising prices or even when they had the embargo, but when the Saudis had the embargo against us, we still had pretty friendly relations with them. But Qaddafi was different. As I say in the book, he'd show up at the leaders conference with a gun in his holster, you know, on his jacket. And he wasn't popular with the other Arab leaders, but he was able to force up prices. We didn't really confront him on that. And once he showed he could do it, then everybody thought they should. And he had a valid point. I mean, because we controlled the oil market so much, the countries over there were being forced to sell it really below its market value. So it wasn't like they were totally vindictive. And also, I find... 
one of the things in the book that even energy experts are totally surprised by, we had import quotas on oil up until 1973 and pretty much didn't allow Saudi or Iranian oil to be imported into this country. So it's pretty hard for us to go back and say, well, we all believe in free trade because we've <laughs> been embargoing their products. And you know, this is another place I was doing an interview the other day. You've got to think about rare earth minerals now. Are there anything we can learn about how we've handled oil in the past? Today, we have another result of the 70s in oil is that we have a strategic petroleum reserve. So if someone were to try to cut us off, we've got crude oil sitting in the ground, quite a bit of it. Now it's less necessary today, but we still have it. So do we need a rare earth material reserve like we had for oil? Or do we want free trade agreements that guarantee that we can trade back and forth? And if we do, we need to be a little careful about slapping embargoes on other countries. So the answers to these dilemmas are not always self-evident. But if you look at the history or parallel problems, you start to get more insight about what questions need to be asked before you make a quick decision. What it sounds like is it's just extremely complicated foreign policy, especially when you mix it with energy as well, and energy is so important. Yeah, you know, I point out at one point, to understand energy, you have to kind of fit it into the framework. And the Shaw of Iran's government was falling apart in December of 1978. We didn't know it at the time, but he had terminal cancer. And I put out in the book and sort of defending, you know, a lot of people say, well, why didn't Carter step in and do this and that? Well, one is the Shaw had cancer. But another thing is I found like a dozen other major foreign policy issues that he was having to deal with that very month, which was including, no one knew it at the time, but we were in the talk about opening up relations with China. Pretty big deal. And a lot of other things that were maybe not that big of a deal, but you know, we were worried about Cuba having Russian missiles and the whole thing. So I do think, I don't want to plug my book too much, but it's pretty hard to find a book that gets you into how presidents make decisions and kind of how much is going on in their world, of which energy is a major part, but it's not the only part. And if you ever get a chance when you're in Atlanta, visit the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library because the museum there has display, which I helped design, called A Day in the Life of the President. And originally, the designer thought we were going to have to do a montage from a month. And I said, no, one day I'll do it. So I think it's like 18 minutes or maybe not quite that long. And it flashes from one thing to another. And it's all based on things that actually happened that day and discussions that they had that day. And I think it's a little bit sobering for all of us to realize how tough that job is. You want people there who surround themselves with people who have good values and are knowledgeable because no single individual can do it all at once. And that's another thing in my book. I try to introduce people to some of the advisors around the president who had influence because sometimes the decisions don't even reach the Oval Office. They're made at lower levels. So we're all trying to make a what can be a complicated story into one that's understandable. And there's a lot to be said for that because a lot of us in the energy field make things more complicated than they need to be and we use all sorts of jargon that's not necessary. So it's a good discipline. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. And that's a great way to summarize the book. And I would love to go to the, you know, President Carter's library and see a day in the president's life because like this just gave me an appreciation of how difficult of a job it is and all the advisors that they have to kind of help because he doesn't really necessarily know you know, that well about all these different issues. So he's really leaning on the people, you know, and I'm thinking about Kissinger and him going and negotiating in the Middle East during, you know, the oil embargo and before and after. So it's really interesting perspective that your book gives. And I really appreciate you for doing this. 
that was my intent. So I hope other people have a similar experience. Yeah, definitely. And this has been an amazing interview. Thank you, Jay, for your time. Jay's new book that just came out April 2021, again, is Energy Crises, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Tough Choices in the 1970s. We'll have information on where you could buy the book online as well. I think it's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and I think Oklahoma Press is the third one. So we'll have that information in the notes of the podcast. Jay, thank you for being on. This was really an amazing interview, and I learned a lot from speaking to you, and I'm sure our audience, who we call Mavericks, uh, benefited as well from the interview. Thank you so much. Oh, anytime. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown. 